in the same region there are shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloth and laying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And they and all had they heard wondered what the shepherds told him. Mary treasured all up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And they had in the end of eight days when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Luke 2, 8 through 21. Beautiful. This is God's word. You may be seated. Excellent work. Beautiful. Thank you. That's my favorite part of maybe being a pastor. So we're in this Advent season. I saw this quote the other day, which was just a good reminder. Uh, this is what one Christian says. Our job, talking to other pastors, leaders, is to train up a generation to laugh at the lie that our joy had to be purchased. Meaning, this world tells us that what we need is more. Consume more, be more, do more, achieve more, and then you'll have joy. What the gospel tells us is joy is found in the person of Jesus. We already have it. And that's what Advent season is all about. Xavier is usually spot on and theologically correct all the time, although this morning he said, Christmas Eve is one week away. It's about, if you remember, it was about 10 minutes ago, cookies, <laughs> Jim Carrey movies, family. He never said Jesus, so <laughs> I don't know what to do with that. Millennials, am I right? I just, yeah. So Advent is historically, whether you come from an Anglican background, a Catholic background, the church traditionally has spent this time, this Advent season, to refocus on the Advent reality. And the ways we do that is we go to Scripture, specifically the birth story of Jesus, and we tell stories that most of us, I bet, have heard. Some of us maybe are fresh with and never really heard. But our job is to remind ourselves that joy is not to be found out there as we get more. Joy is to be found in here as we get to know him more. That's what we're doing through Advent. We're looking at Jesus in his Advent story. But here's one of the questions. How do you enter this story? 
Like, which character do you sort of grab onto as this is the character that brings me into the story? Too often, we as humans, this is just part of being human, and we center ourselves at the story. We're the main actor. Like Ozzy, my baby, he's five years old, he's in basketball right now, we go watch his game, and he's every bit as good as you'd expect him to be coming from the Watt family. <laughs> Except he's not the best on the team. The coach's kid is amazing. He scores like 30 points a game, five years old. My kids all say, that's the next LeBron James. <laughs> I'm like, his dad is my height with 30 pounds on me. No. He's... <laughs> he might be a chef for LeBron James or... <laughs> but as we advocate, Jesus is the main character. Mary seems to be a very prominent character. Joseph seems to be somewhat of a prominent character. Which character do we grab hold of? This week and next week, I think, are the characters that we should grab hold on to enter this story. The shepherds. And next week, a guy, some of you maybe never heard of, a guy named Simeon, who was just sitting waiting for Jesus to come. And then he could go be with the Lord. So the shepherds is who we're looking at today. And we're going to be reminded of the joy we have through the life story of this shepherds, which is told in just a few paragraphs here. Here's what we're going to do if you're a note taker. My wife comes to the second service. She's a note taker, so I always have this for her and whoever else is like her. Three reminders of our Christian joy. And it's been a while. Alliteration's back. There's a message of Jesus. There's the manger of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. So let's walk through this story once again. First up, the message of Jesus. I want to read what Beckham just read. But let's go to Luke chapter 2, verse 8. Through 14. Again, I, I know this is known by some, but it's overassumed. This is a true story. We're not reading a Disney story. We're reading something that happened that Luke, a physician, a very de detailed physician, wrote down so that we could enter into the story 2,000 years later. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled, filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. What is this message of Jesus that the angels bring? In the same region, they're out in the field, and the angel comes, verse 10, and says to them, here's what could have been said, Cursed are you. Jesus says that to people. Woe! Judgment is coming. Here's what a lot of our friends and family and other religious traditions believe God has given them. I give to you instructions on how to do better and be better, my people. What does the angel bring? He brings good news down low. Verse 10, fear not. I bring you good news of great joy. That will be for all the people. If you stick with this church long enough, you're going to hear this so much, you're going to get annoyed with it. And that's a good thing. Because if you forget this, you miss Christianity. Christianity primarily is about news. 
about what God has done in the person of Jesus. Most people lump Christianity up into all worldviews and religious systems, and they think Christianity is about advice. Here's what you should do or should not do in order to be better. Christianity is about news about what God has done. The other day, I'm in one of my discipline moments with one of my kids, and I blurt out, be better. And my wife looks at me, really? (laughs) All you do is preach the gospel and tell people that you can't be better and be good enough, that Jesus is the better one. And your advice to your kid is be better. I said, yes. (laughs) That's what most people think religion is. God showing us in maybe a gracious way, maybe not. Here's how you be better. And that's not what the angels bring. They bring good news about what Jesus has done. In this church, like Some of you are doctors, some of you are administrators, some of you are business people, some of you are... We all have ways to assess how well you're doing in your job. If you're a doctor, you look at stats and health and how much people have come in and gotten better through you. If you're an engineer, how much you've actually built the things, you get the point. What's my, like, assessment thing? Like, souls in heaven? The most baseline way I can assess my health and ability as a leader, as a pastor, is asking this question over and over again. What is the gospel? And if people's answers are right and getting more right, that's a good thing. One way I ask it in discipleship environments is I say, give a tweet. I don't know if you call that anymore on Acts, but a sentence answer. What's the gospel? What's the gospel in one paragraph? And what's the gospel in one page? Tell me what Jesus has done. What is the gospel? And most people have bad to heretical answers to that until they come into a church, come into a discipleship environment where people teach them, listen, it's not about you and what you can or can't do. It's about Jesus and what he has done in spite of you, in spite of me. And the angels bring the good news, and here's what they say, verse 11. For unto you is born this day In the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Two simple sentences. Jesus is Savior. Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus is Savior. He is the one to fix all that is broken in this world. The Christian summary summary statement is Satan, sin, and death. He has saved us from all three of those things. He is the Savior, and he's Lord. He's the one to lead this world now and into eternity. He is the Savior. He is the King. That's That's the gospel. Jesus Christ is the one. Interesting fact, our Jewish friends just wrapped up Hanukkah. Beautiful celebration. What's fascinating is Hanukkah is about a Jesus-like figure who did wonderful things for the Jewish people about 200 years before Jesus came. Jacob the Maccabee, Jacob the Hammer, they're under rule like they've been ever since they said they abandoned God and they started following idols, and they're under some sort of Greek rule, and the Greeks come in and they take the temple over and they fill the temple with paganness, Greek gods, Greek goddesses. And Jacob the hammer, who's as tough as his name sounds, comes in and fights for the purity and the salvation of Israel. And he cleanses the temple. And that right there is the celebration of what Hanukkah is. A temporary savior, a temporary leader, a temporary Lord. He was good, but he did not last. What we celebrate is he is the savior, 
He is the Lord of all the world. He is the Savior. He is the Lord of all the world. But here's the thing that I've just been sitting with sort of devotionally. What do the shepherds remind us of as Christians? Like, how do we enter this story through the lens of the shepherds? They're sitting out in this field. They're working with their animals. The angel appears, says, the Savior's born in the city of David. He is Lord. Another way to ask it is, what do the shepherds have to do with Jesus, the Savior and Lord, being born in the same region as them? What business do they have being there? being involved, being invited in to this story. What do they have to do with it? Here's the answer. Nothing, and at the same time, everything. Nothing. They are not necessary for God's plan of redemption to go forth at all. And yet they represent everything that the gospel is, that God through the person of Jesus Christ, through the fulfillment of the Jewish scriptures, this Messiah, he has now entered this world. He has made an address here on earth to stay forever, and he now has skin and DNA and a genetic makeup. He, God, the creator of all things, has come down and been limited in creation for the sake of his people. And these shepherds are a picture of that. Verse 8, in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Why the shepherds? The top two reasons that theologians and scholars, whatever that means, come up with is the reality that shepherd meant a lot to Jesus. He is our great shepherd. So it's a foreshadowing of that which Jesus would be. The other one is interesting. This is the more interesting one. There's extra biblical documents in the Jewish uh, reality back then that says how the Passover lambs and the sacrificial lambs had to be dealt with and they couldn't be dealt with in Jerusalem near the temple so they had to be out in a field about where these shepherds are. So it's likely these are priestly shepherds who are tending to the animals that would become the sacrifice that ultimately would end when Jesus became the ultimate sacrifice 30 some odd years after this moment. Maybe it's that Maybe it's the shepherd thing. I think it's a bit of both. But here's what I wrote down, just for us to remember. To be reminded of joy we have, Christians. God takes the first step. God finds you. God does the work of saving you. He invites you in, like he invited some shepherds who did not belong in this story, into the story. Why the shepherds? I don't know. Why you? I don't know. Why me? I don't know. We're having another discussion with our kids the other day. My wife's like, do you know what my most proud thing in life is? I'm talking to me, talking to our kids, and I said, this is it. <laughs> 16 years ago, she met this curly-haired man. She said, it's nothing I can take credit for. It's the fact that God found me. And who I was and who I was becoming and who I would become if left to myself is not my final story. But he found me. He brought me in. And there's nothing in my life greater than that. That's what we learn from the shepherds. He came for shepherds. He came for kings. He came from 
plumbers. He came for the business elite. He came for the religious. He came for the irreligious. He came for virgins. He came for the most promiscuous one in this room. He came for pro-life advocates. He came for abortion doctors. He came for men. He came for women. He came for the sweetest of children and the most callous, grumpy old person in this room. He came for shepherds, and he came for you, and he came for me. That's the message of Christianity. There's nothing sweeter in all the world. That's why we have joy. Here's the second thing we see in this, is the manger of Jesus. Luke 2, 15 through 17. Let's read this. What do we learn about the joy we have through this manger scene? Luke 2, 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. What is the manger of Jesus? Xavier did a great job last week just talking about it's not all that impressive. Most cleaned up nativity scenes we have in our house are like hallmark versions of something much more raw and PG-13 to R-rated to just nasty. None of us would want it. It's like people we drive by, going to Thunderbird on off-ramps. I would not want to be a part of what's happening here. That's about what it would feel like. I got a picture just to show you. This is one possible feeding trough manger that was used back then. The king of the universe, the creator of all the stars in the sky, the creator of Earth and Pluto and your genetic code and light and dark, his first residence was in a trough where animals drank out of. That's the manger of Jesus. He comes. What do we learn from that picture? Here's one of the things we can't miss. Just the humility of our king to come down so low. But here's another angle I've been just looking at the manger scene with. Is what else do we learn about Jesus through this? Like what does that scene represent, that manger? It's the birth moment of Jesus. It's the hospital room. I've been in four hospital rooms for four different kids. It's that scene. As you think about your life, my life, what are the most intimate moments of your life that only a few get invited into? I think of your birth. I think of your death. Birth, who gets invited? It's whoever's really close to your parents or your mother-in-law if she's forceful enough to get her way into <laughs> It's who is intimately a part of this. I think of death, similar. Who gets to be a part of that? If you're lucky, it's people who love you dearly and cherish you a lot. And what the manger scene represents is the birth of Jesus. Who is in the room with Jesus? Like I have a, my firstborn, Elijah, we had him in Texas, so we're from here. We lived in Texas Nobody's in the room for it. It's an emergency C-section. It's every bit as gnarly as you'd expect first parents going through an emergency C-section. It's a lot. The next day, we're at part of this church. I'm not going to say any names so you don't go do any research, but opens the door our worship pastor. My wife's recovering from, if you know what a C-section is, it's major surgery my wife has reminded me of. I just got stitches recently. She's like, just so you know, I've had four major surgeries. And our worship leader 
who is, we, we're blessed with like, Cruz is one of the most gifted, humble, wonderful people. Not everybody gets a cruise at their church. <laughs> Some of you get a little cheesier version of what cruise is, and that's who we had in Texas. And me and my wife, he walks in, and right behind him is a very forceful wife. And my wife, I could just see it, tears are ready to burst. I'm like, hey, can you, uh, maybe not now. Great job on the pastoral care and visitation system. Like, yeah. this is great, but can you uh, escort him out? And then the wife barges back in. I just am here to help. It's like, when I plan my developing a family, you two were not on any list <laughs> of invites to anything. Birthdays, celebrations, none of it. And you're here. And I think of death. I've only been in the room when one person died, my grandma. Prescott, she's in hospice. I'm with my grandpa. And she takes her last breath, and the nurses walk us through exactly what's going to happen. And I watch my grandpa, who's as tough as nails, an Iowa farmer turned union carpenter, like melt into a little boy as his wife takes his last breath. Like intimate moments. And what we see in the manger is an intimate moment. And who gets invited into the room as Jesus is born? Some dirty shepherds who were just out in a field. Fast forward to the end of his life. His death. Who gets invited to look in on his death? The whole entire world. That's amazing. What does that tell you? God wants intimacy. He has no off limits. He has no boundaries like I have, even with my own kids. Like, I need some space. From birth till death, God needed no space. He welcomed us in the entire time. He wants intimacy. There's a passage in Luke. It's one of my favorites. It's about prayer, but it's Jesus trying to teach his disciples, I want you to be annoying to me. I want you to come after me and come after me and come after me. He says this, Luke chapter 11, verse 5, talking about prayer. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within. So some friends asking for some bread. Here's the answer from within. Do not bother me. The door is shut. My children are in bed with me. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. His friendship means nothing right now. It's actually on the rocks. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I tell you, Jesus says to all of you, ask, seek, knock. What is impudence? It's really annoying people who don't know social cues and just keep going and going and going. And Jesus says, that's what I want for you as you come to me in prayer. From his birth till his death, he is welcomed in relationship. That's the first thing I see from the, the manger scene. But here's the second thing, is we have to take steps in order to experience deeper intimacy. I just want to read again. It's on the screen. Here's what it says. The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. The shepherds said to one another, let's talk about this. Let's start a Bible study about what we've just heard. Let's go read a book. Let's start a podcast about what we've just heard. They go over and they, with haste, go see and experience that which they were just told about. 
What if the shepherds had just sat with the information they were given and did nothing? I mean, the Bible is what it is. This is how it happened. But would the world still be waiting on a Savior? No. Would Jesus have been born? Yes, he already was. Would those shepherds come to know Jesus anyways? Probably. Would they have been in awe of the fact that they heard that news first? Yes. But they would have been missing one little piece of their life story, being a part of that very moment which the angels invited them into. I think about it this way. I think about, I watch a lot of people because I'm a pastor, and I know that's annoying, and you're like, I knew it! You. But it's part of the deal. And as people get older and they navigate their kids, I watch a lot because that's where I'm headed. And I think a lot of people in a lot of spaces, I say it this way, leave a lot of influence on the table. Meaning God has given you a finite amount of influence over the people in your lives. Your kids, your spouse maybe, your neighbors, your coworkers, but a finite amount of influence. And because of how you posture yourself, or how easy or not easy it is to approach you about stuff. The influence that you used to have, could have had, could have used, gets left on the table. A lot. Older parents, listen to me. There's influence left on the table when it's all said and done because of how you postured yourself towards people. In the same way, I think an experience of Jesus. There are experiences of Jesus that we leave on the table. Maybe even with good theology as our reason. Sovereignty of God, reform stuff, all of which I say yes and amen. But there's an experience to be had with the person of Jesus. Not in the manger that scene is over with. But he is alive and well today. His spirit is alive and well in you. And we leave experience on the table a lot of times, I think. Some of you are like, well, give me some, just here's some buckets just for us to think through. Suffering. Jesus cause or allow all suffering. He did not cause or allow suffering in your life so that you could learn how to distract and numb yourself so that you don't experience that pain in a glorifying way. Whatever suffering you have in your life, has it drawn you closer to he who suffered far greater than you? Or has it, I mean, Xavier preached on, there's peace in the midst of pain, all this, and I get some stitches for something, and I'm like having Xavier's head roll through my head. I can have peace in this. I can, even though I hate medical stuff, I hate blood, I hate doctors, I hate all that, I hate all of you. It's just all, it's all bad. <laughs> Suffering, is it drawing you closer to an experience of Jesus? Yes or no? Here's the other one. Serving. I mentioned at the beginning of our Advent, pick one person, don't tell anyone, and serve. So much of experiencing Jesus is only experienced as you act like Jesus, who did things without notoriety that he deserved. He just served because he was a servant. And he served because that's what you do. It's better to give than to receive, Jesus says. So where in your home, in your work, can you serve in ways that you'll be drawn into a deeper experience of Jesus Christ? Nobody signs up for this, but that's what the Bible invites us to to experience some more. And here's the other one, just a sense I'm getting from younger folks I talk to. I'll call it send it. 
Like, when have you tried and failed something? Like, what is the age where, like, trying and failing is now no longer an option? Because as a dad, all my kids have to try and fail, 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 have to try. But there's, I get a sense in my own soul, like, at some point, that's not fun anymore. It's not doing it because it's fun doing it because it draws you into an experience of Jesus. As you stick your head out there and try stuff and maybe look like a total embarrassment, what do you do in the embarrassment? He who bore your shame picks you up. What do you do in your weakness? He who is strong when you are weak picks you up. You try and fail and you experience more of Jesus. The shepherds heard something and they went and they did something with what they heard and they experienced this sweet, intimate moment with Jesus. That is still offered today, church. That's what the manger of Jesus reminds of us. And then finally, here's the mission of Jesus. Verse 18 through 21. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds had told them. And Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. What is the mission of Jesus? Verse 20, I think, gives a good just summary statement. Glorify and praise God for all that we have heard and seen. That's the mission. To take part in glorifying and praising God for all that we've heard and seen in our lives, in the lives of others, in the lives of the church, in the lives of the global church community, to glorify and praise God. Habakkuk says it this way. This is what life is all about. This is why this earth was created. For the earth one day will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Currently, the knowledge and the glory of the Lord does not fill the earth. It inhabits unique individuals filled by the Spirit and unique churches filled by the Spirit, joined together by the gospel of Jesus Christ. But it does not fill the earth right now. That's why news is terrible. That's why your neighbor and you don't get along that well. That's why you don't love your job as much. That's why you're divorced, because the knowledge of the glory of the Lord does not fill this earth yet. But one day, it will. How's that going to happen? As people glorify and fill the world with what they've seen, what they've heard from Jesus Christ himself. Now, here's what's just been a sweet ending to my time. Because usually as a, when I'm just going through a book of the Bible, I kind of just am a blank slate. In Advent, I'm like, I know how this story ends. I know the baby in the manger. I get it. But this one ended different because I expected to be able to just proclaim to you all. To now leave this place and go tell everyone about what Jesus has done in your life. Which I will do. But it's not the only thing I will do. Because there's two people who have a response to this. How is the world going to be filled broadly and deeply with the knowledge and glory of the Lord? Let's look at Mary's response. Here's what we learn from both Mary and the shepherds. It says this about Mary, mother of Jesus. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Shepherd's response, verse 20. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. 
The first response is to sit with it and ponder. Sit and ponder. Part of the Advent season is just sitting alone with your thoughts about Jesus. And that's a good thing. As an internal process, right? I made this realization when I was on a hunt with my dad two years ago. Like, oh my gosh, I'm the only internal processor in my entire life. Everyone around me wants to talk through everything they're thinking about. My dad, my mom, my kids, my wife. Nowhere is there somebody just like me who just enjoys sitting there without a word being said. Because I'm thinking and I'm chewing on stuff. As an internal processor, I'm glad this is Mary's response. Because this is primarily how I worship the Lord. Just alone with my thoughts. However, I don't think Mary stayed quiet all that long. Most scholars believe where Luke the physician got his material for most of this story in these early chapters is from Mary, mother of Jesus. So at some point, what was in her heart, pondering, stirring, simmering, filling her heart with joy, she tells people about. And at some point as Christians, we can't just sit and ponder. We must proclaim. We've got to talk about it. Ecclesiastes 3.7 says this, There is a time to speak, there's a time to be silent. Mary says you can worship even in the silence, and the shepherds teach us we can worship with our words, and we should. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. What has God done for you? And have you shared that with anyone recently? That's all the shepherds did. I heard something, I went, I saw it, and now I can't stop talking about what I've heard and what I've seen. Why should you proclaim? Because the Bible commands it. If you do like a study of what's the verb that God uses most to give to us to be followed and to be listened to, it's some version of praise or exhort or lift up. Use your words to talk about Jesus. In song, in conversation, across the Bible, that's the number one command. It's commanded to proclaim all you've heard and seen. It's also our responsibility. Matthew says, I've given this great commission to you, the end of Matthew. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I command. It's our responsibility to the nations to proclaim. But it's also for this reason, and C.S. Lewis captures well. Why do we proclaim that what we've seen, what we've heard, how we've experienced Jesus, whether it's in a manger, or whether it's in addiction rehab? It's because that's when our joy becomes most full. C.S. Lewis has a famous line talking about delight and joy, and when it's full and complete. He says this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but it completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. It's frust- This is my wife's world. It's frustrating to have discovered a new author and not be able to tell anyone how good he is. To come suddenly at the turn of the road upon some mountain valley of unexpected grandeur and then have to keep silent because the people with you care for it no more than for a tin can in the ditch. To hear a great joke and find no one to share it with. 
This is why the catechism says that man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. He goes on. But we shall then know that these are the same thing. Fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him now and forever. Proclaim what you've heard and what you've seen. Here's what I love about Christianity. We've just spent the last 30 35 minutes talking about some shepherds with no names from 2,000 years ago. You guys willingly got in your car, drove here, made a commitment and a sacrifice to listen to a story about some no-name people. Why? Because it's a reminder that we have this glorious king, and there's no no-name people in his kingdom. The message is for all. The manger invites all of us into intimacy with him now and forever. And his mission is now to go out and to spread the knowledge and the glory of God forever and fill this earth with it in our hearts as we sit and ponder and with our mouths as we go and proclaim that which Jesus has done. Amen? Amen. This is the good news of Advent. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for Advent, your first Advent. Thank you that we're getting close to being done with Advent, which means one step closer to your second coming. And God, as a church, as we sit in this space of the in-between, in between the manger scene and in between the time when you return as the glorious triumphant king, that we get to look at a story and see some shepherds and see ourselves in them. We who were far off. We who felt far off. We who had not taken a step or a look in your direction, but you came out and found us in the field and you told us about something glorious you were doing and you invited us in to receive the gospel. And you did not stop there. You invite us into deeper union by your spirit, in the person of Jesus, now and forever. And now you've placed on our shoulders the responsibility and the privilege to be the same thing the shepherds were in this story, those who proclaim and glorify because of all we've heard and seen. So God, keep our aim simple and our joy full in this season. Amen.